Before we begin, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. In particular, a huge debt of thanks to our cabinet member level supporter, Arlena Frank-Waller. Your support is critical to the success of this podcast. Another thank you is owed to our ambassador-level supporters, Jeff Flores and Todd Kent. Thank you to all of our patrons for making this episode possible. Together, we are reaching the top government podcast charts in countries ranging from Europe to Asia, and we are just getting started. I hope you enjoy this episode. podcast. As always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and today we're honored to have a distinguished maritime security analyst, Colin Coe, on board the New Diplomatist. Thank you so much, Colin, for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Garrison, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to host you. And Colin, would you mind just giving a quick walkthrough for listeners who may not be quite as familiar with your career, just what's brought you to this stage of your expertise and what you specialize in? Sure. I work as a research fellow in the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies that is based in Singapore. And the RSIS, as it was called in short form, is a think tank. It is also a graduate school on international studies, focusing on Asia. So part of my work, I look at the research on maritime security and naval affairs in the Indo-Pacific region, I specifically focus on Southeast Asia. That has been the things that I've been looking at since the time I did my PhD. So this is one area that I focus on. But it is important to note that when we look at maritime security and naval issues, it tends to not be so confined to just one geographical region and isolated from the rest because there's always an overlap. So in a way, you will have to look at the adjacent regions like those in Northeast Asia, those in Indian Ocean, because there is this sort of interconnectivity, interlinkages of, of issues. So it is a very complex undertaking to look at maritime security, but I can assure you that you know if you get into the midst of it, it is going to be very rewarding and it's very fulfilling at the end. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And it is such an honor to have you on the podcast. And the region that you live in and that you study is just packed full of so many different things to analyze, like you said, whether it's China or India or the ASEAN countries. But I, I, we'll get into that in a moment. But taking one brief step back, just to kind of orient some of the listeners who may not be quite as familiar with naval security, perhaps give us kind of a philosophical overview. You know, why should we care? Why should the average listener invest time in studying naval security? What, what's its relevance to those who perhaps aren't as invested in the field? as you and I. Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, if one bothers to look at history, you, it's very clear that some of the world's greatest powers, we talk about the time when there was the Pax Britannica, and of course, right now, we are still in the era of the Pax Americana, uh, despite the, the fact that, you know, there were all these existing commentaries saying that the end of U.S. unipolarity is, is over, giving way to a more multipolar world. We go back to history, Till now, it's very clear that the seas, which constituted 70% of the Earth's surface, is a, a very important medium to mankind. We look at the seas when it comes to you know resource exploitation, dealing with fisheries, energy resources on the seabed. And we are also talking about these days harnessing energy, renewable energy from the sea as well. And more importantly is perhaps the oceans that serve as essentially a medium through which 
the seaborne trade goes through. I mean, much of the world's trade goes through the sea. And despite the fact that we have air freight that could be faster and cheaper, when we talk about more voluminous transportation of goods, commodities, fuel supplies, things that essentially power our economies in today's context. In the future, we're going to look at the seas as the medium that's going to be very instrumental for the well-being of mankind. And with that, I mean, with the fact that the sea is so important, it is little wonder that, you know, countries around the world put so much focus on naval security or maritime security. We are talking about essentially upholding of national interests in the maritime domain. Be that as it may, you can define what national interests are for different countries of different sizes. National interest at sea means very different things. But there's one thing is very clear is in today's context, from the legal, from the political, from the diplomatic, the economics point of view, the sea is an important arena for both competition and cooperation. And that's where we see threats abound. Threats that come from the foreign aggression by other countries trying to stop seaborne trade and trying to blockade the other country. Or we are talking about you know, maritime terrorists, we're talking about pirates, sea robbers who are trying to imperil the world trade, for instance. So because of this, we look at naval security in a very holistic sense. It is not just purely designed like what it was back in the ancient times when great powers essentially roamed the oceans and they tried to outgun each other to gain primacy. In today's context, naval security is seen in both competitive and cooperative terms because of the a myriad of threats that will imperil maritime security for all mankind. So that is the reason why you know, it's important to stress you know, the things that you find on the table, the things that you eat and the things that you use, all these come from somewhere. And it is consequential to note that these are in a way you know, reflective of the importance of seaborne trade and thereby it's important to say that what we will usually term as good order at sea. Good order, be it we're talking about state actors or against non-state actors, it is consequential. So this is basically, you know, what I'm trying to do to try to, you know, sort of condense everything. I believe I, I would have done some injustice to the very huge multidisciplinary field of maritime security, but I believe this is probably the best I can put forward as a summary of how and why maritime security is so important. I agree with it. I really do. And it's interesting because if you look around the world today, it seems like everybody's getting back into the naval game, at least in my, mm. my opinion. You know, uh, France announcing mm. a new carrier program, aircraft carrier program. Uh, South Korea pushing on with their light aircraft carrier. India pushing for a third. And beyond aircraft carriers, you know, Japan having a record defense budget. All of these, mm. you know, I'm pulling from your, your recent article on the uh, 9 dash line. Dot com, which yeah. I highly recommend anyone listening to go and read immediately. But, you Thank know, you. just to kind of underscore the globalized nature of the difficulties, the challenges and opportunities that arise from this, I wanted to zone in maybe just on one particular instance in December to start things off. Mm. In December mm. of last year, a 400-some-odd ship Chinese fishing fleet appeared mm. off the coast of Chile mm. inside the economic exclusion zone. They were intercepted mm. by the Chilean Navy and monitored and... Even though it's not illegal to sail as one country through another country's EEZ, mm. it is illegal to fish, as I understand it. And mm. yet this was a massive, massive fleet fishing off the Galapagos Island. 
And yet there really wasn't too much of a fallout from Chile on the subject. And actually Peru wound up facing the same thing several days later. What would you say is the, 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 the top considerations for countries in contending with difficult naval security situations like that? Because although we do have international maritime law, there also is the law of size as well. And you kind of see China flexing their muscles there. So could you kind of delve into the nuance of that a little bit? Thank you. Thank you, Gary. So this is a very good question. And this, I mean, in a way, you sort of also highlight the contradiction between how states, especially smaller and, and weaker states, especially those you'll find in you know South America, for example, they are trying to uphold rules-based order. And that is premised on international laws like, for example, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea or UNCLOS uh, that was uh, promulgated in 1982, that which you were referring to. On the other hand, there is always what we call the real politic of uh, international mm. affairs, yes. where you know we talk about the domestic needs of those countries and the imperatives that they face, some hard choices that they had to make, some sort of balance that they had to make as well. I'm not, I have to, have to stress, I'm not a South America expert, but you know, in general, some of the things are, are pretty clear. One is that South American economies are at least in part dependent on fishery. And, and fishery constitutes a very important facet of their economic well-being and development. So in a way, you know, when you find a foreign fishing fleet that enters into your exclusive economic zone and operating in such large numbers, you tend to be alarmed as well because in a way, these also threatens the local livelihood of the fishermen. And, and the thing is, I would believe that South America wouldn't be pretty unfamiliar with this when you have larger foreign fishing vessels that in some ways outsize the local fishing vessels. They are intimidating. I mean, you, you would you want to go out to fish when you're confronted with a large foreign fleet of larger fishing boats? You do not want to get into trouble and you tend to avoid it. Most fishermen will avoid it, but it wouldn't stop them from highlighting that, you know, they, they couldn't get to fish, they couldn't get to the fishing ground because they were intimidated by a large fishing fleet of larger ships out there. And this definitely will get the authorities' attention, if not because the authorities themselves detected the large fleet. Now, this is, of course, the domestic economic context that we're looking at when it comes to South America with respect to the huge Chinese fishing fleet that was observed off the Galapagos. And the thing is, be that as it may, there is definitely another concern. On the one hand, UNCLOS does, as you mentioned, Garrison, it does give certain high seas rights to maritime users. I mean, in this case, we see South American countries as the coastal states, China being the maritime user state. They have the high seas right to pass through the EEZ. But the thing is, when you pass through the EEZ, and that is usually where UNCLOS does have certain ambiguities in terms of the provisions that govern the rights and duties of coastal states and the rights and freedoms of, of, of the user states. In this case, if the fishing vessels passes through the EEZ of Chile, for example, I mean, the Chinese can easily say, you know, we are just exercising freedom of navigation. We are just passing through. We are not fishing in your EEZ. But the, the, the only issue here is how will you know that is one. Second, how do you 
observe with precision the activities that are conducted by the boats out there at sea. I mean, one very obvious way to do that is through what we call automatic identification system. But if you look at the reports that came out from Chile and other South American countries, it is clear that not all of these Chinese fishing vessels are transmitting AIS signals, Mm. which also means it is very difficult to keep track of what they are doing. And it is all the more, even more difficult to try to observe what they exactly are trying to do when they pass through your waters. Mm. So in a way, that does reflect another problem. The problem here is not just so much going to do with the legal ambiguities of UNCLOS. I mean, the thing is that everybody accepts that, you know, UNCLOS is an imperfect document. I mean, it has ambiguities, it has gaps. It's imperfect. But the greater problem is the limited capacity or, or, or the inability of certain coastal states to properly monitor their maritime domain. When you have UNCLOS entitle you to a large maritime zone stretching out to more than 200 nautical miles from your baseline, you know, it, it might not be proportionate to the capabilities that you have in trying to police them. That to me is, in fact, you know, the greater problem. So that is one issue I believe South America and for that matter, I believe in, in Asia, those that have confronted Chinese fishing vessels, they have to deal with. On the other hand, you mentioned about the real politics. I'll be real quick about it. Okay. Oh no, this um, is fascinating. America, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, South America is in recent times dependent on foreign investments. I mean, this is definitely something that is a legitimate concern because you, you can't keep on, you know, maintaining an essentially agrarian-based economy, right? You, you need industrialization, you need infrastructure, you need to attract investments, you need to promote yourself into what we call knowledge-based economy in the future. And these days we are talking about what they call Industry 4.0. So because of that, you'll find South American countries embracing Chinese investments in multiple areas like infrastructure, like, you know, 5G, Huawei, for example. So, you know, these, these, I will believe is something that will inform on policy making in the South American capitals. When they are actually very angsty about the Chinese fishing vessels, at the same time, they also will be very aware that they do not necessarily try to rock the boat too much because it might potentially imperil Chinese investments in a country, you know, that, that there could be, you know, some form of retaliation from China. So in a way, you know, I have to sum up you know, to observe that it's a very, very precarious catch two situation, especially for smaller and weaker countries like those in South America. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating, and my mind's just reeling with other things to ask because it just it, one thing spills right into the next. But to to kind of further consider the the issue of China and, and power at sea, you know, turning back to the the other half of the Pacific, the the near half for China and, and your corner of the world, generally speaking, in the South China Sea, obviously that's the big hot button issue, I would say, in Washington and in defense circles at the Pentagon and so on. There's so many questions happening simultaneously. You know, it's easy to forget that in 2015, President Xi Jinping actually promised then United States President Barack Obama that he would not militarize the Spratly Islands uh, in the South China Sea, that their construction and placement, uh, the dredging efforts and so on, that these were ultimately civilian concerns. And, and while he did stress this is their area of water, in his opinion, he said we won't militarize. Well, of course they did. Could you unpack for the listeners, this is such an often discussed subject, the nine-dash line, the South China Sea, 
it's mm. so often discussed that I feel like if you're not already in the field of maritime security or in international relations or so on, that mm. it can be easy to, to not get the full story of, of why this is significant, this mm. maritime claim. So could you maybe unpack that? I know it's a big question, but could you unpack some of the significance of that claim? Mm, sure. Garrison, you're right. The South China Sea Studies is a large and growing field. In the past, we don't have many South China Sea experts who talk about the issues largely because back then information has been pretty scant. These days you have, you know, with the use of open source intelligence, it is much more possible to try to make sense of what's happening on the ground. That provides a lot of material for analysis. And therefore, what you are seeing in today's context has been what I would deem as a growing cottage industry of new South China Sea studies circle that's emerging in multiple places, in Asia for sure, and of course uh, in the US. Before that, you know, it used to be that Australians are pretty much dominant in, in the field, especially in the 1990s. Therefore, you know, in today's context, we have many more analysis and, you know, very notably, we are seeing as well Chinese scholars, especially those who deal with international law like UNCLOS, for example, trying to get into the game of writing in, in the English medium. That's why they, you see them publishing in English medium journals, for example, trying to put forth China's position on the South China Sea. So I will, I will encourage readers and to try to unpack these literature as well. But what I'll do now is to roughly sort of give a context to it. Now, the, the South China Sea claims has been there for a while. I mean, back in the Cold War period, it has been a, a rather dormant issue. Largely because, you know, countries back then are largely preoccupied with land-based issues. It was with the advent of UNCLOS that we see a renewed interest in looking outward to the sea. And therefore, you see, when countries try to increasingly territorialize the maritime zone, the South China Sea started to come in the picture, especially back in the 1990s. That is when a lot of the action started to happen in, the, in around 2010. That was uh, two years before Xi Jinping came to power. There had already been a number of incidents in the South China Sea. Don't be mistaken that all these Chinese assertiveness and coercion came about only with Xi Jinping in power. That's not true. The assertiveness and the coercion started to already appear predating Xi Jinping's ascendance to power. Mm, what Xi that's Jinping a good point. Did, essentially, yeah, what Xi Jinping did was when he came to power in 2012, well, he actually came up with many flagship initiatives, something that you can see as analogous to how in, in democratic societies, you know, those who are running elections will have their own elected platform, right? Yes, so, yes, indeed. Yeah, so, so in this case, for a communist regime like like, like China, for, for Xi Jinping, you know, one way of gaining legitimacy is to come up with grand ideas. I mean, he had many grand ideas. One certainly is to do with what he called the China Dream. The China Dream Project talks about having China first becoming a middle-income society by the 2030s. And then by 2050, China has to be a wealthy, strong nation with a strong army that is a world-class standard. That, to some analysts, was taken as 
trying to imply that China wants to be a superpower by then, a real superpower, and or even the only superpower by then. That is a, the one vision that Xi Jinping puts forth. The second is certainly talking about a much more altruistic thing that is not exactly very altruistic is what he called the community of shared future for all mankind, which you know <laughs> essentially you know stresses upon development peaceful development as, and of course multilateralism and these slogan is especially very useful during the time when the Trump administration was in power because Xi Jinping wants to contrast China against Trump administration's unilateralism and, and anti-globalization so that is I mean in a way deliberate that is political that is geopolitical that is not so altruistic as we, as we think if you look at these frameworks that Xi Jinping came about it's important to highlight that in today's context in China, it is no longer just sufficient for those in power. What I'm referring to will be the Communist Party to just talk about delivering the social economic goods to the people in exchange for their loyalty to the regime. In today's context, they are talking about increasingly tech-savvy Chinese population. Younger Chinese, they aren't as appreciative as their forefathers when it comes to you know the social economic goods, they they took it as a given because they are born in the current era. To them, they have never seen hardships that their forefathers had come across. Say, for example, during the Cultural Revolution, for them, China is strong in their mind, and the social economic goods that are delivered by the party is a given. So therefore, something has to give, and that something is to appeal to nationalism. Appeal to nationalism requires the Communist Party to put itself as a vanguard of national sovereignty and pride. And that is also a reason why Xi Jinping in 2012, not too long after he came to power, he stressed that China will assert its maritime sovereignty and rights. That is a key element of his platform when it comes to forming up that China Dream Project. So that in a way, help to explain why there is a growing assertiveness of China in the South China Sea. When Xi Jinping you know, gave that pledge not to militarize, I mean, to be very honest, I, I wouldn't be very sure why anyone in the Pentagon or, or in the White House would, would take him seriously at all. Because in the first place, all these you know issues that predated the 2015 Rose Garden meeting, you know, really be very instructive to show that China first does not respect agreements. That is one. Yes. Second, it's amazing China, how few people readily grasp that, even though it's been proven over and over by events. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you have to recall that back in twenty, all everything came from the twenty twelve event in the South China Sea over this very obscure feature called Scarborough Shore in April 2012. And back then, the Philippine Navy simply went about doing what it is used to doing by apprehending a group of Chinese fishermen. And then you have the Chinese Coast Guard intervening and forcing the Filipinos to release them. And there was a broken truce between uh, the Filipinos and the Chinese under the Obama administration. But the thing is, for all the goodwill and good intentions of the Obama administration, the mistake is to simply you know, overlook the fact that the Chinese may might renege on its promise. So not long after the Filipinos pulled out of the Scarborough shore to try to put an end to the, to the standoff, the Chinese decided that they should stay put. So within less than 24 hours, Chinese Coast Guard vessels returned to the feature, and that is what we have today. <laughs> the Chinese have de facto 
occupation and control over Scarborough Shore. And the reason is because Xi Jinping just could not bear with the idea that you already have it in your hands. Why do you want to give it away? Right, mm, yes. and the, and by putting away, it signals something negative to domestic audience that China under Xi Jinping decided to just bow to external pressure and compromise maritime sovereignty and rights. So that is the reason why the Chinese decided they should renege on the agreement. And of course, you know, there's much to unpack on the Obama administration back then because of the climate change agreement, you know, Obama wanted China to be on board. You know, that is also reason why all these slew of construction activities are pretty much overlooked. The bigger question we tend to have, which is a question that I posed to, you know, officials who, who served before in the Obama administration, that, you know, the U.S. has the world's best intelligence systems. <laughs> you have the best, you know, spy satellites that can do real-time monitoring of any part of the world. Why would you miss all these dredging activities in the South China mm. Sea in the first place, right? Mm, and yes. the reason I got, which is consistent throughout my conversation, is that it is a political imperative mm. not to overblow the issue. And essentially, what I'm trying to say is the Chinese had been given a free pass back, yes. back then. And yeah. essentially, nothing was done to stop the Chinese from proceeding with building all those huge artificial islands. So in a way, while the Chinese say we were militarized, but you have seen that over the course of these years, you know, there is a change in the narrative that, you know, we do we did promise not to militarize, but you Americans force us to do that because you guys were militarizing the South China Sea and therefore I had to do it in self-defense. Mm, <laughs> yes, yes. That is the, the sort of new, new argument to simply just give a legitimate justification to what China is doing. And, and in a way, you know, in, in one of some of my work that I pointed out, you know, this whole concept of militarization is problematic because not all countries could agree on what do we mean by militarization in the first place. Mm, and yes. because of that, you know, I do wonder, you know, when Xi Jinping talked about no militarization, did he actually define very clearly what what militarization he's talking about in the first place? Right. So, mm. you know, it's pretty much open to interpretation by any party what militarization entails, what it means. It means different things to different people. To, to China, what it's doing is a militarization about self-defense. But what the U.S. is doing is militarization. So, so in a way, this very dirty word militarization has been pretty much abused over and over. And I don't think many people have a, the, the, the scantest idea what they actually mean by militarization. I'm, I'm saying that with respect to the media commentaries out there when they use a the term so loosely, and I also refer these to you know, any officials out there who use the word militarization, I do wonder what do they really mean by that. So that is the context we are looking at. Wow. No, it's a wonderfully put point. It's very fascinating. You know, and, and the area is so significant. It really is. I mean, 3.4 trillion with a T dollars worth, US dollars worth of trade flows through the South China Sea alone. You know, it's it's the world shipping lanes. And, you know, honestly, Colin, just between you and me, I've always wondered if the other nations of the world, you know, led by the United States in particular and objecting to China, claiming full sovereignty over the area, perhaps we should have named it something else. You know, South China Sea is always kind of confusing because it sounds like from the very name that we're granting them sovereignty in the first place. So I always yeah. thought we should have named it something else like Western Pacific. But in any yeah. event, there's so much we could cover here. But, you know, just trying to, to pack it in. In the Southeast Asian region, 
you know, it really is a microcosm of, of the world at large, I think. You have mm. you have fairly small powers, you have fairly middleweight powers, and then you have the giants of the region, which mm. I think would probably fairly be put, just in terms of population, if nothing else, is India and, and China. I know India is a little further to the west, but nonetheless, mm. everybody's... In their own sense, and I know we're ignoring the COVID situation, but I, I'm hoping that passes and I want to keep this podcast relevant for the future beyond the pandemic. Mm. You know, when when you look at the region, you see competing narratives of what the future of trade, the future of security, the future of geopolitics should look like. And on, I guess on the one end, you would have the great power competition between the United States and, and its allies in China and some of the assertiveness you mentioned that's been going on for a while. And then on the other end, you would have like the, uh, the ASEAN countries uh, attempting to build a multilateral, cooperative, I'd say trade-based order. I guess this is a two-part question. First part would be, what do you see as the future of the cooperative, multilateral, trade-based security order pushed by groups like ASEAN? And then I'll, I'll ask a similar question about the great powers after you're done. Mm, mm, sure. Well, this is a very, very huge question, I would say. Some of my colleagues in RSIS uh, who look at multilateralism might have been better placed to answer that, but I will share my, my, my views on that. It's important to highlight that for small, medium states and powers like those in Southeast Asia, basically trade is everything. Trade is everything because basically it is what, you know, generates wealth for the countries in the region. I mean, I'm not saying that Southeast Asia is unique, but if you look at the composition, the sort of domestic context of Southeast Asia, it's clear that trade is very, very important when it comes to, you know, prosperity and survival. So you find that in the current COVID situation, Southeast Asian countries are some of the hardest hit in the world because you're looking at very huge economic contraction for many of these countries due to, you know, the curtailment of trade and of course the sort of a huge decline in exports as well as, of course, there's a very important part of the economy is the dip in tourism. So in a way, it has always been important. So the, the underlying premise is you want to make use of globalization and the existing multilateral institutions to promote trade that is assumed to be good for everybody. So to promote more economic interdependence means you know common prosperity for everybody. So that has always been the Southeast Asia approach. And in fact, you know, when ASEAN as a bloc was being first set up back in the 1960s, some of the things that prompted the formulation of this block part has to do with the Cold War geopolitics in the region, but it also has a very strong agenda on promoting economic integration. So this has always been ASEAN's objective, is to try to ensure greater integration in the region beyond Southeast Asia. So you'll find formulations that in involve the surrounding regional powers you'll find that the ASEAN-led institutions in a way overlapping with the other regional institutions like APEC, for example. So, you know, this has always been what, you know, ASEAN has been trying to strive for. And with the current pandemic, we see ASEAN countries falling back on the same trend-tested formula, which is to promote more multilateralism in trade. So that's the reason why, you know, initially there was some disappointment in some of the ASEAN countries when the Trump administration decided to pull out of the TPP, for example. And there is much elation when finally the, 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 the sort of long-drawn talks on the RCEP has been eventually promulgated last year. These provided some promise. And in a way, if you look at the current COVID situation, it's clear that 
ASEAN countries put a, a lot more faith and I would say a lot of hope on these multilateral mechanisms that can promote trade, even with China being a dominant party in the midst. And of course, that is a separate issue when it comes to the potential underlying risk of relying too much on this system because of the fact that China doesn't regard these uh, multilateral mechanisms largely from a pure economic standpoint. It clearly regards these institutions as helping to advance its geopolitical aims ultimately in the region. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And and pivoting from that, you know, I I'm I'm so tempted to sneak in a third question on the RCEP, but mm. we'll we'll have to have you back on the podcast to discuss more about that. <laughs> but you know, t- pivoting from the smaller powers, which uh, you did an excellent job outlining there, to the great power competition in the mm. area. Obviously, being American myself and and being saturated in American news media, you know, they they often act like the only two nations in Asia are the United States uh, from across the Pacific and China. So that's why I wanted to discuss the, the ASEAN countries. Obviously, we are living in, in something of a bipolar Pacific age, I think it might be fair to say at the moment, between, between China loosely defined and the United States loosely defined. With the advent of the, the new administration, with the Biden administration, obviously, I think everyone's waiting to see you know, just what lines he will draw, where his stance will be, you know, will he moderate all of Trump's positions? Will he uh, adopt and reform others, but keep them? But it's pretty clear that there are certain sticking points that are here to stay. And one of them is the freedom of navigation exercises that the United States Navy is continuing to conduct, particularly in the Taiwan Straits and the South China Sea. You know, I think a lot of people in the United States, what we hear about it, you know, we support our Navy. We, We believe that, you know, okay, you know, freedom of the seas is a good thing. But there really isn't a grasp of of why this particular issue seems to kind of encapsulate the great power competition going on in the Pacific at the moment and the Mm. need and the drive for a new Navy and a blue water Navy for China and so on. Could you talk Mm. about how this freedom of navigation in particular is kind of the the linchpin of this discussion and, and what its significance might be going forward? Mm, yes, uh, very good question, Garrison. And of course, that harks back to the Cold War era negotiations between the, the various countries when they started to formulate UNCLOS. And the, throughout the whole whole slew of negotiations, certain teams continue to dominate, one of which being freedom of navigation. And of course, that is one of the reasons that led to the formulation of certain provisions, say, for example, Innocent Passage, transit regime, so as archipelagic sea lanes, passengers, being, you know, some of these products of the, the, the discussions back then. These discussions continue to be relevant till today because of the very reason that while most countries will agree that freedom of navigation is important, they have to they tend to stay in a very bifurcated manner. Okay. Now one on the one end you have freedom of navigation for civilian shipping. And, and nobody would really argue that, you know, civilian shipping, freedom of navigation is important because it is vital for trade. We're talking about tankers and merchant vessels. But on the other hand, there is also what we call freedom of navigation for military assets. That is where, even in UNCLOS, there's a lot of ambiguity that govern how military assets could operate in certain maritime zones. The contention that we see today between China and the U.S., revolves around their disagreement concerning freedom of navigation. When China puts out official pronunciations claiming that they respect freedom of navigation, you look at it in a very nuanced way. They are referring to not disrupting civilian vessels. 
but they do not say that they they agree with military freedom of navigation. <laughs> that is something they don't agree with because essentially that will help explain why there has been numerous incidents in the South China Sea earlier on. I give some examples. The EP3 incident of Hainan that was not long after Bush Jr. became president back in April 2001. Mm. And then, of course, you know, when Obama came to power not long after in March that year in 2009, there was an impeccable incident in Hainan as well, of Hainan. And of course, when Trump came to power one month later, there was an incident whereby you have a close encounter between the US and, and Chinese military planes above the Spratlys. So all these incidents highlighted one very important point. There is a persistent point of contention when it comes to freedom of navigation and overflight, when it comes to military assets. For China, the, the EEZ is not just purely an economic zone. But the thing is, it is not legal to look upon it as a security zone because if you look at the provisions of UNCLOS, it's pretty clear that other than the economic aspects of the EEZ, high seas rules apply. The only issue here is there are some wordings in UNCLOS that talks about things such as paying due regard for each other in the EEZ. So what exactly is due regard? For China, due regard means the US should pay heat to China's national interest and therefore don't keep sending military reconnaissance assets like warships or you know airplanes close to Chinese shores. So that is the Chinese position. But for the US, simply what the what the American military assets are, are doing out in the South China Sea is an exercise of freedom of navigation. So that is you know a long-standing contention. But be that as it may, there is some very interesting developments that we've seen in the recent times. Now, China would say all these issues back then largely because it was a weak maritime power. But in today's context, as you point out, Garrison, China has bulking up its blue water navy. Mm, yes, and a blue water navy has global ambitions. And China has global ambitions because if you look at the very recent amended law of national defense, it's clear now there is a new emphasis or what it calls developmental interest that is not confined to national borders. Hmm. So which means that if need be, China will use its naval power to safeguard those interests out in the far-flung regions, like say in the Middle East, like, like in Africa, for example. So that brings us to one question. Do, well, if China criticized the US for doing things that it, it has been criticizing the US of doing in terms of freedom of navigation overflight, will China find itself in the same problem in the future when it started to operate as freely off foreign shores out mm. there? And, and yes. that, that, does leave, that does leave a certain debate on what we call double standards on the way China Absolutely. looks at unclosed. Things that favors it, you will you will agree. But it, things doesn't favor it, it opposes. So that's what we call cherry picking unclosed. This is, I would say, in as much to do with China's geopolitical ambition, but I will also attribute it to the fact that UNCLOS itself, being an ambiguous document, does leave a lot of room for various interpretations. So that is a structural issue that I believe in, in, in time to come, various parties to UNCLOS will try to find a way to reconcile these differences. But before that happens, we will be settled with all these you know, to and fro debates and disagreements between China and the US, and for that matter, other countries when it comes to freedom of navigation and overflight. Yeah. 
Okay, that was so fascinating. I, I got to slip in one last quick bonus question because it's just killing me. I, I got to ask it, which is in your expert opinion, you know, I hear about this and it's so fascinating just to play devil's advocate for a second here. You know, if, if I'm looking at the world from from China's coastline, you have U.S. warships sailing nearby your coastline, generally speaking. It's going to, to prick that nationalist nerve that you spoke of. The rising generation within China is used to China being a, a rising power, one for which things are very possible. You know, if the shoe was on the other foot, so to speak, as we say in America, if Chinese warships were, were buzzing the straits off of California, I imagine there probably would be more discussion on the U.S. side about how this is unfair and we need to protect coastline and so on. So I, I understand it cuts both ways. But looking out over the next, I don't know, 20 to 30 years, you know, the U.S. Navy is obviously very dominant. But with, the, as you rightfully mentioned, the, the blue water ascension of China, you know, the, the aircraft carriers, I believe it's the, the Type 055 class cruisers, mm. you know, 10,000, cruiser, yeah. more than 10,000 tons on these warships, mm. you know, clearly not designed for coastal defense. What does naval competition look like? It's very hard to predict, I know, but what does it look like, the, the state of the Pacific, the balance of power between the U.S. Mm. Navy and the PLA Navy, say, two mm. decades from now, if, if things continue on their current trend and we'll end there? Mm. Yeah, in fact, Garrison, this is a very good question. Now, we could look at past historical antecedents and one one very useful one will be between the Soviet Union and the US. I'm not saying that the, the Soviet Union has the same geopolitical context as China. They have a completely different context and the international context is different as well. But we look at what happened in the past has been these decades-long cat-and-mouse you know, maneuvers and counter-maneuvers between the, these two opposing naval powers. We are likely going to see that replicating between the Chinese and Americans in the coming years. With the growing blue water capabilities of the PLA Navy, we will be pretty assured that the Chinese will definitely start to appear in more places around the world's ocean. And that will also mean coming into close contact with other foreign navies. In a way, if there is no war in, in such times or what we call troubles peace, all we can say and what we can will likely see is that these opposing rival naval forces will continue to operate in the same space, trying to keep a respectable distance from each other and yet at the same time monitoring each other. And I will also be more mindful of the fact that even with today's proliferation of open source intelligence and you know much more accessible media, there will still be huge attempts that will be exerted by these great powers to try to ensure that many of those activities that they undertake and if there are any incidents that take place, they would as best be kept under wraps. So we will likely only be aware of you know, this and that, you know, maritime incident that almost led to the loss of this and that platform only many years later. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and assuming that China is going to not be like the Soviet Union, then we're going to see that continue to happen. And the fact that you know, on the one hand, the Chinese have the benefit of a pretty new navy. I mean, when I call it pretty new, it's like, you know, the Chinese uh, were, were, had just uh, bought a new smartphone, whereas the, the US smartphone has been used for almost one decade, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> in a way, it's new. New things can become old. And in a way, we do have questions that are legitimately asked 
concerning the Chinese ability to sustain their current shipbuilding effort. So it has, of course, been premised on the assumption that China's economy is going to continue with an upward trajectory. There's always the question of domestic stresses and, and pressure that could potentially put paid to all these efforts. So it's not a, a given that the Chinese economic ascendance is going to continue on its trajectory. So there are a lot more uncertainty surrounding it. Of course, that also means the ability of China to sustain its naval shipbuilding ability. And in the longer future, how is China able to maintain such a large fleet of warships? Mm. And how is China going to train the right personnel to operate and maintain those assets? On average, in China, you require four to five years to train a fully operational naval ship officer. Typically, it applies to you know navies worldwide. It takes a long time to qualify naval officers and, and, and personnel, including the ratings. So, it's a huge endeavor. So the bigger question is, can China sustain that? But if you assume that that's going to remain the case and China can sustain itself to likely become potentially the world's premium naval power that is on par with the U.S., not all is lost. I mean, honestly, the one thing China doesn't have, and I believe China wants to have but still could not have, is the alliances and partnerships that the U.S. Navy has very cautiously, very carefully cultivated over the many decades mm. since 1945. And these alliances and partnerships are going to become extremely instrumental in, in, in deciding the outcome of any future conflict between the US and China. So therefore, you know, even though during the Trump administration, there has been a lot of talk about, you know, what they call the 500 ship Navy. I mean, the, to me, it is important to, to recapitalize your fleet. But at the same time, you don't forget, you know, you have alliances and partnerships that you can leverage so that you can harness the strengths of everybody and, and, and work together. So I believe in the coming years, this is going to not just be a China-US problem when it comes to, you know, naval competition out there. It's going to be one that's going to be very complex. It is going to be one that is multi-actor, multi-party in nature. In this case, the Biden administration, I mean, some of the signs that come out of Biden administration has been very encouraging, you know, trying to put more emphasis in reinvigorating U.S. alliances and partnership. I believe that is the right direction that can be undertaken in the coming years. You know, it is really ironic because if you think back all the way to the World War II era, it was the United States Navy probably more than any other force that saved China from Japan. Mm. And now, you know, the, the interesting arcs of history, isn't it, that here all these decades later now it's it's a basis of confrontation but colin thank you so much for coming on the podcast today i could keep you on for hours but we'll have to wrap it up here to respect your time sir but just want to say no, thank, thank you, you so much, much for bringing your expertise your knowledge base and a very engaging conversation hope to have you back soon and, and thanks so much for being on the new diplomatist podcast thank you garrison thank you again for waking up so early to host me on your <laughs> podcast i really enjoy it i look forward to engaging you and, and in the podcast in the future thank you absolutely well sir thank you Thank you.